0: When Kubernetes came out, most of the requests for the last four years were, make Kubernetes work like the old stuff. I want my storage. I want the same network plugins. I want the same firewall rule management. And a lot of enterprises kind of approach technology that way. They say, hey, can you make the new thing work the old way?
1: Are you struggling to deploy cloud-native applications to a hybrid cloud? Do you want to become familiar with Kubernetes and Istio? IBM Cloud has a set of free, hands-on training, ebooks, and an always-on free tier of services to help you learn. Visit ibm.biz slash stackoverflow to learn more. That's ibm.biz slash stackoverflow. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Paul and Sarah.
2: Hey. Hey y'all. Oh my God. We're doing it again. How's it going?
1: We have a wonderful guest this week, Kelsey Hightower, but before Sarah gets introducing him, I just wanted to go over something that I think is pretty important. How I use Python and selenium to get a lifetime supply of garlic pizza sticks. Can you walk me through the uh, tricks that this coder used to stay in the deliciousness forever and ever?
2: I mean, this is a classic, right? This is, I I hacked the online promotion. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, this is the pudding cups to get the air travel. I mean, this is, you know, it's... I remember once, when I was a kid, we went across the country on Amtrak, partially due to peanut butter. Like, my mom just bought an enormous amount of peanut butter. <laughs> and it gave us a significant discount, and that's how we saw America. Thanks, peanut butter. No, this is a good article. I mean, you know, I'm just going to say... The words that always give me comfort about our industry, Sarah, you'll know them Selenium WebDriver.
3: Yeah, Selenium WebDriver. I need a few minutes with this article in order to be able to tell you what happened.
2: I think
1: that somehow he used Selenium to, to randomize the GUID and just, you could just keep refreshing, keep clicking that coupon, keep the garlic sticks coming.
2: Yep, he wrote a little bot. That got him lots of Papa John's garlic pizza sticks. It's worth reading. Just, you know, if you don't know Selenium, you should know Selenium. It's a critical piece of everything. I used it once because I couldn't get API access to something. It's about 10 years ago. And I really wasn't supposed to be where I was. It was kind of a stealth project inside of an org. And you, can, you yeah. can script that thing and just go to town. I downloaded terabytes of data. And then somehow they turned it off. I don't know what happened. Maybe they figured something out. But Selenium, man, just go, go check that out and get yourself some garlic sticks. It's also, if you, if you ever want a really good time in a really like, oh, my God, know what happened to the world, go search for the guy who founded Papa John's his house. He has a statue of mating eagles in his foyer, so that that's a just how you know. Anyway, but this guy got a lot of breadsticks, and that's why we yeah. use open source. All right. <laughs> Sarah, y- who did you invite onto our program today?
3: Yeah, I'm so excited. So I have been a huge fan for a long time. Finally got the chance to see him speak in person and code live at OpenJS last year. It was Really amazing!
2: Oh wait, Code Live isn't like an event. I'm like, oh, Code Live, no, no, <laughs> yeah. the, actually, programming live in coding front of,
3: in front of a thousand people—literally
2: my worst nightmare. Actually, yeah. like something I wake up from a cold sweat in. But this person does it.
3: Yeah, the whole audience was captivated. It was really amazing, and I knew it would be excellent to have him on the show. Really excited to welcome Kelsey Hightower, principal engineer at Google. Um, welcome, Kelsey.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. So wait, what, what does a principal engineer do all day? I, I always like to understand like what people's jobs are.
0: Uh, so in Google, they have a really great IC track. So technically, I sit at a director level with no reports. And in Google's world, I guess the higher you go up, the idea is that you can lead with a lot of influence and persuasion. So if there's something hmm. big that needs to happen, let's say industry-wide, Can you lead through a little bit of thought leadership, meaning can you get the world to understand what those ideas are? And then can you articulate clearly what needs to happen, whether it's a new open source project, improving existing products, and getting a lot of other engineers to understand and go out and build and ultimately ship that thing. And if you multiply that by, I guess, multiple projects at a given time, then that would be considered the type of leadership they would expect at that level.
1: And so... When you say a director level, but an IC, is that something you made a conscious choice about because you prefer to be an IC, or is that something that you kind of fell into due to the kind of work you were doing?
0: Yeah, so I rolled into Google and I've probably managed people at almost every job I've had in the last maybe eight or nine years prior. And when I got to Google, this concept of the distinguished engineer and some of the fellows, and just watching those people if you only have to manage one person, then you get to focus on some of the big picture stuff. So this is one of those situations where you still collaborate with other teams. It kind of feels like you have like the same number of meetings. One-on-ones are just as important, but you're not necessarily focused on a specific project. You're not specifically focused on maybe growing and cultivating your talent that's on your team. Um, You're really focused on the ability to say, wow, what would be the things I would do if I had the time to do them? So- That became a conscious decision for me to say, wow, I'm finally at a company big enough to afford to be able to truly actually have executive level individual contributors and measure their impact outside of a large team in terms of being managed.
3: I've seen a lot of companies do this well and some companies do this poorly. And I think I know a lot of engineers who are excellent at what they do. And that doesn't necessarily mean they want to manage people. And so being able to have a track to distinguish those folks and recognize them for their excellence and how they influence, I think is amazing. That's great.
1: So Kelsey, can you tell us a little bit about some of the stuff that's interesting to you right now that you're that you're diving into And by doing some of that deeper work, hoping to maybe make an impact or, yeah, that sort of ripple effect where other people want to get interested in that and start working on it.
0: Yeah. So maybe a little retrospective about where I found success and why I'm trying to use that same model to try to replicate new areas. So if you think about configuration management, I went to work at Puppet Labs, but after spending years in the enterprise using configuration management tools to do all the things over an extended amount of time, like three plus years of taking an enterprise from point A to point, I don't know, Z, and then taking that experience like that true hands-on, where the pager experience into the open source world to not only become a customer, but to actually be the person who makes the software. And I noticed when I got to Puppet is that you don't just write code all day and just ship the results. You actually interact and engage with the broader community, right? Some people will come in on the open source side. Some people will be brand new. You have a chance to educate them all while balancing your kind of day job of writing code all day. But that's when I kind of understood that there's a way to influence the entire industry before you write a single line of code. First of all, you can listen to them. Stack Overflow, for example, what questions are people asking? Those will give you hints and clues about where your product can use improvement. And if you fast forward to Google, taking the ability to kind of do that across a wide range of things, and what are those things? I think security is a super interesting space now that we're starting to go from 7,000 agents deployed on some server attempting to secure your environment. But the problem with all of those tools today, they're just all have their own configuration language, their own UIs, different people in charge of them. There's no unifying way to get policy. So for me, I'm spending a lot of time in the areas some people call service mesh, but I like to break things down a little bit lower. So there's policy. So in the open source world, there's a tool called Open Policy Agent. This is where you can actually define your policies in kind of an expressive way. And then you can actually use that policy engine to manage your cloud deployments. If you're an app developer, do Off-Z once you've authenticated someone. And then there's tools like Envoy that give people this whole sidecar way of thinking about networking, retry policies, routing traffic, mirroring traffic, all the things a developer would have to do if you were dealing with like services or microservices, whatever you want to call it. So those areas are, are distinctly unique. And then on the other side, there's a bit of machine learning inside of people's data centers. People love Google's machine learning capabilities, but how do you get that on a factory floor? How do you get that into a retail store? So that's one of the projects I work on amongst many.
2: Let me be a user, which I am, and ask you a question because I mean, you're this makes sense to me, but I think we should go meta and like... Here I am one day I say I'm going to I'm going to put something up on Google Cloud Run. I'm going to have fun. It'll take a couple hours. I'll figure it out. And then I hit that hamburger menu. And that thing is big. This is a very very large surface. And the same is true of AWS, the same is true of Azure. Like I mean it, clouds are enormous and they're kind of operating systems unto themselves and you're you're reaching out to people and saying, "Hey, come on in here." What are the entry points now? Where do you get started with this? Because you can't just SSH into a server and run Apache and cross your fingers that it's going to work. Like it, It's so big.
0: Yeah, the entry point for most customers who I think are successful in the cloud is what are you trying to do first? And if you look at the way most clouds evolved, it has evolved based on what people were trying to do, right? The first service in Google was App Engine. There were no VMs, load balancers, storage, nothing. Just App Engine, mm-hmm. right? And this is for people that may not be aware of App Engine, it's kind of like Heroku, right? Give us your source code and we'll run it for you. But then when you start to attract new customers, they're like, no, I want a VM. No, I want something that looks like I have on-prem or I want some of your machine learning APIs. So what's the entry point for most people? If it's a financial institution, they may say, look, the margins on processing stock trades is so low, we can no longer do it by buying, you know, $100 million worth of gear and then trying to get that back in five years. We need something a little bit more immediate. So for them, the entry point would be, give us the biggest VMs you have that we can turn off when we're not using, that can do some machine learning using your special hardware. That is cheaper than what we can do on our own. So that would be an entry point for them. Now, if you're an application developer and you come to me and you say, look, I'm just going to be processing some HTTP requests. I need a decent backend. Their entry point might be something like, cloud run, stick it in the container, connect it to a managed Postgres database, and call it good. So it's really, even for a single organization, I might get 10 separate entry points depending on what the team is trying to do. And that's why the hamburger menu is so massive. And this is why most people, if you've ever logged into Google Cloud, you notice that you can pin the things you care about and then just hide the rest of the icons.
2: That is entirely true. But see, then I want to know. Then I'm like, what? what can you do with the TPU? <laughs> But you got to think about like GitHub, right? Like if you really tried to start at the front door of GitHub,
0: think about just slash of GitHub, whatever that is internally, you would see hundreds of millions of like open source projects, right? And you would just get lost and paralyzed in the thought of opportunity. But the truth is you don't need all those libraries. So what most people end up doing is if you're writing Go, then you're going to be like, oh, where's the Go front door for that? And maybe it's going to be some Go module registry than just raw source code.
2: I think GitHub also has this advantage where like at a fundamental level, while I use it and love it, Git is terrible. Like it's really, really easy to get lost and confused. And then GitHub made that easier. And you're just like, it does that one thing and you're like, okay. And then everything else follows. As long as they never take away that one thing, you're fine. You're just like, all right, well, here's a whole lot of chaos and confusion. I I will figure it out. But I I mean, the cloud platforms, right? Like you're talking about, they don't do one thing, they do a hundred things. I love this world because it just reminds me of different phases in computing. Like it feels like one day it probably will simplify in new ways and and there'll be like one mega cloud or maybe not. I don't know. Like, where do you see this world going? Because you're in a position to shape it. The reason
0: why I won't simplify all at once is because there are millions of companies out there, right? So one company might be ready for serverless everything, just take my app, run it, and I'll make the app changes to live in that world. And there's a company that has 1,000 times more money to spend. And when a customer with 1,000 times more money to spend shows up and says, I want to do things like I was doing in 1998. Where is your offering? You're going to figure out how to service that particular
2: customer. <laughs> you tell her, because three orders of magnitude, right? Like it'll it'll just, exactly. it always does the trick. So
0: then what you're going to see is, you're going to always see a basically a computing history museum of offerings at every cloud provider, because this is just the way of the world. <laughs> yeah, when they
3: first started, there was that one big customer that they did the one-off with, and now there's 25 of them.
2: New York because nobody is going to say... Let's avoid enterprise and go for a pure consumer cloud offering. That's a, That would be a ridiculous statement.
0: Well, I I tried to sum this up. Whenever the enterprise, and you got to remember, mainframe is still a really good platform. I actually worked in finance and learned the mainframe. And once you understand how it's super optimized for country numbers, it's one of these things is why they still sell new ones in 2020. But the thing I've noticed about maybe most companies, they usually have a ton of cash. So that means they can do things like, When Kubernetes came out, most of the requests for the last four years were, make Kubernetes work like the old stuff. I want my storage, (laughs) I want the same network plugins, I want the same firewall rule management. And a lot of enterprises kind of approach technology that way. They say, hey, can you make the new thing work the old way?
3: Yeah, you know, one thing that I've observed or we've talked about a lot on the show, too, is kind of what you're talking about, right? There's a new technology comes out. We no longer need the things of the past. But then some time goes on and some things break and we realize what the value of some of those things were. So I'm sure you see a lot of people coming from a standard server environment from moving over to the cloud. Do you see a lot of difficulty with DevOps folks in the past that are trying to learn these new things? Is it fairly seamless? Do you see them struggle? What have you seen?
0: I think it depends, right? So the biggest problem we've had so far in computing, right? We've been on this 40-year maturity curve, and most apps were written to the machine, right? oh, I need to make this system call, specifically this system call. And that requires this specific kernel version. And most tools we've used, it's kind of been a gift and a curse, right? Like people are calling out to command line tools. And if you don't have a certain version of output from a specific tool, then everything breaks. And then what we start to do is those become our APIs, even though there's no promise that they'll be stable, but we end up just building up all of this infrastructure the whole world depends on on top of this very brittle thing at the bottom. So if you look at most of the kind of offerings we've had recently, they're all about decoupling the application from that low level metal, right? So VMware did it first with the whole virtual machines. And then when you get into cloud, we kind of kept it going with Linux, but containers or even any platform as a service that you try to uplevel it just one step. Don't worry about the Linux version. Don't worry about the kernel version you can only program to things that have a promise, like the ABI of the kernel, Mm -hmm. right? These are the system calls that are guaranteed to be around for a while. And if you stick to those, then I can evolve the thing at the bottom much faster than you saying, I need Red Hat Mm 5.5, right? Like that's where we start to get into trouble and then you kind of get stuck where you are. So this is where I see a lot of people who've automated things. So think about the concept of automation you need to know what needs to happen at every step of a process so you can go and automate it. But what if every step is, all right, start this bash prompt, then call expect, then pipe the data into this version of grep with this flag, right? Not dash V good news style, but dash V Solaris style because I've been doing this for a while. Once that gets encoded into your fabric, you can't move anywhere, right? The first time I move you to like maybe a Linux, a different environment, everything falls apart. So that's the fundamental reason why I think a lot of people struggle. They go all in on these interfaces that aren't actually truly portable. Can I jump in for a second here?
1: I'm not as conversant in this, but it sounds like this is like the macro problem with microservices, right? Which is that you're starting to depend on all of these different things that give you more flexibility, allow you to scale up and down. You're not in that monolith anymore, but you create a lot more of these middle points in between them, and those become points of failure. Is that what kind of what you're
0: getting at? Microservices is probably closer to like trying to be a politician with no experience on how to govern 100 million people. <laughs> so you have people that have been operating in a monolith, meaning they're the only person. They live in their apartment by themselves. They were our only child. They have no experience what it's like to really gain consensus with anything, right? right. They know- not socialized. M- yep, not socialized. They don't have to, right? You're a monolith. Everything you do, it's all in your head and you're good to go. And then you say, now I'm in charge of like, I don't know, 300 million people. And I'm just going to have them do things that I would do by myself. And people say, well, not everyone agrees on everything. And then what about security? How do you make sure people can identify themselves? Like, why do we need ID? I I just have a single key to my door. What do we mean we need different keys for everyone? So when people go into the microservices world, they don't understand the trade-offs. When you go from one app to break it up into a million pieces, number one, most people don't even know what the pieces should be whether they should be bigger microservices or should they be smaller microservices, people struggle with that all the time. And then once you do it, now you got to start introducing a network. And most people do not understand networking at all. Like once you get past like IP addresses and ports, most people just fall apart and (laughs) they assume that things will always make it to the other side and back again and be fast. Like these are things that are fundamentally hard in networking and in computer science in general. So when you couple that with the need to do metrics, observability, all of these disciplines that most people have never gotten around to when everything is in one single uh, binary, if you will. So I just think it's one of these things where there's not a problem with it. It's just that most people don't have experience ever doing this. You go to a conference, right? And you're like, hey, you should be doing microservices. And you probably see this in your data. Stack Overflow, how to do microservices the best yeah, ever. Definitely. And then you get this comment, like <laughs> the best comments on Stack Overflow are like a PhD thesis, right? Like they're a hundred pages, one comment. If you're going to do microservices, let me elaborate. And then it's like, you've been reading for four hours. You're like, I think I can do it now. Let me just copy and paste this code snippet at the bottom. Boom, microservices.
3: I guess that must be a common story. Uh, people with a monolith wanting to jump in the deep end. Is there a, a shallow end for that? You know, I'm. we have a monolith. We really want to start breaking things up. Where do you point people as how to get started?
0: Yeah. So when you say like the deep end, like if you can't swim, then, you know, the deep end don't matter. Like you just don't need to touch the deep end. You need to start, you know, like most pools will have like the three foot section yeah. with the steps yeah. that lead in. I think people should like, you know, put your toe in there. If it's too cold for you, maybe this is not the right day to swim. Or you kind of put one foot in at a time and kind of get used to it. Then you put another foot in. I think people should take that pragmatic step. So one would be realizing that you probably already have a services infrastructure. And people are like, Kelsey, no, we have a monolith. I just told you. I said, where's your DNS server run? Oh, that runs over here. I was like, great. That's your first service. Mm -hmm. It's called Domain Name Service, right? Like, it's over there. So, you already have your microservice. So, go and celebrate, go update LinkedIn. You've done it.
3: (laughs) That's great. I'm doing it right
0: now. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So, you should do that. And then I think the next thing is now you ask yourself, what's the next one? What should be the next service? And for a lot of people, that may be authentication, right? The thing that creates JOT tokens, the things that authenticate users and passes back a session key or something like that, that you could say, all right, we could build that ourselves or we could use Auth0 or some of these other authentication services. So then I will tell people very concretely, that's where it's probably a good idea to set a flag, right? Do we use the Mm Auth service that's built into the monolith so we can actually roll back in case the external one doesn't work or we need more time to experiment? And maybe you move the Auth service out. So now you got two... And then that's going to give you enough uh, runway to say, okay, how do we debug the interaction between these two services? How do we make sure that it's fast? Do we do caching? Do we do rate limiting? If you can get it right for one service, now you have the foundation to start making this decision in other aspects of the service or code base.
2: But we want to go to microservices. (laughs) I mean that like today. Yeah, you can go today. Like I, I will totally sell you a microservices digital transformation yeah. developer kit. I read an article. I don't know. I mean why this, this sounds like work and it ha- you have to be thoughtful and actually understand the platform you're building on top of. Like
0: but trust me, you should see how how much pressure comes off people's shoulders when I tell them they already have microservices. That DNS example, people just say, "So you mean all this time We've been doing microservices. I was like, yeah, no one told you? God. And then they just get so happy.
2: You know, that is a very good point, which is (laughs) that there's so much sort of money and energy to be created when you brand something and say this is the right way to do it but you leave it very ambiguous like you can just you can get people so confused and scared that they're doing it the wrong way it's real like i mean microservices to me has always just it just has been an exhausting conversation in our industry that i feel like i'm now on the 10th version of that conversation i don't have a lot of patience for it like you know if things are working let's start there right Yeah,
0: I think it speaks to the kind of the lack of our kind of maturity. Like when I watch, you know, sometimes I do watch an ad and you see someone running through Central Park and it's like, you know, this call your physician if you have like this particular disease, like I don't have that disease. Therefore, I'm not going to call my physician for that particular medication. When people see patterns or solutions to problems they don't have in tech, they're like, wow, I should have that problem. Something's wrong yes. with my. Team. Oh my
2: God! That that's, well, you you go <laughs> through the airport and you know there's you know, Accenture is telling you. Do you have I don't know Squid Five? And you're just like, oh my God! I better I better look that up.
1: The other problem is that when it comes to tech ads, they don't have to list all the side effects at the end, so oh, you're not sure. Yeah,
2: that that these
0: microservices, you know, a little bit of nausea, some disorientation. I think we should protest the Surgeon General. To do that, like this may cause sleep deprivation. <laughs> long work hours, and a failing production system.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. God, that would be amazing. If they had to list side effects for ads for technology, oh, the entire ind- the industry would melt in about 35 minutes. I think we would, that law would get passed.
1: Whew. So Kelsey, you mentioned at the beginning of this call that you wake up early, and that's when you spend a little time working on things outside of your stuff, the projects you're interested in hacking on or
0: open source. What's been interesting you in those areas these days? I guess, you know, for me, the big goal for me is like when I see something new, I've spent so many years studying the fundamentals of like things, right? So for example, when I used to manage infrastructure, things like Nginx, I would go super deep. How does Nginx work? Mm -hmm. You know, threads versus processes, memory management, it's config file, Lua modules. And you had all these things you can do in Nginx. And then fast forward to 2020, maybe even 2016 service mesh oh my god look what you could do with this service mesh you can put like this proxy in front of your app and you can make the proxy do things and i'm staring at them like you know nginx could do a lot of that <laughs> stuff and they're like no dude this is service mesh 2020 cloud native i was like you can run nginx in the cloud and they're like no you don't get it you just don't get it so what i have to do then is like go and take these new things so right now again i think Envoy proxy is going to be transformational as Kubernetes was to containers, as Linux was to Unix. I think the world, and you already see it today with many of the cloud providers and even some of the common ones like Cisco and Juniper, they're all playing with Envoy as this kind of universal network control plane device because it's extensible. It has all the properties that make a platform successful. So what I've been doing is really starting to understand is config language. So I'm writing the config by hand. I to get, I'm almost at you know 400 lines of YAML for some of these examples that I'm working
2: on. Mm, that's that's too many lines of YAML. Yeah, that's that's, I've, of had, YAML. I've had
3: nightmares with 400 lines well, of YAML. Any,
2: anything more than zero <laughs> lines gets me very upset. <laughs> but
3: the nice thing, though, is
0: that it's fully automatable. It's fully programmable. You mm-hmm. can use it with a control plane. And this is the big difference between Envoy and something like Nginx or old-school Apache. There was no universal data uh, control plane to go with those those proxies. So I find that super interesting and just like what does it look like in production and then documenting some of the patterns that we use at Google uh, to manage authorization across multiple services in a way that I don't think is universally understood or known. Mm-hmm.
3: This is so cool. Um, the Envoy was created at Lyft and is now part of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation.
0: Yeah, and if you look at Amazon, Red Hat, Google, they all use Envoy in production in our cloud platforms to give you like your internal load balancer services.
2: You want to know, I'm looking this up and it's become a really positive signal when something has documentation in like the Python read the doc style and it's got that sort of nested thing on the left as opposed to being just like this full blast marketing site. Go! I'm looking at the Envoy docs and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, this is... (laughs) This starts with an install, get the, all right. Oh, there's the YAML. I'm not going to have to figure much out. Oh, and then all of a sudden you've deployed something. That is how you do it. Very exciting.
1: Kelsey, is there anything in particular you want to shout out that could be an organization, a project, something cool you saw, you know, just something where you want to shine a light on somebody. And this is um, an opportunity to get in front of a few people's ears.
0: Oh man, I guess it's so timely. You know, if people should like vote, Uh, It's one of those things where I hear a lot of people are very vocal about the things that are happening to them in their real lives. And if you live in a society where we elect officials to help us try to figure that out, then I think you owe it to yourself to be a part of the process, which is voting even at the local level. So the person running for city council who's going to manage your property tax dollars, maybe you should have and weigh in and have a say watch the videos and debates of those people. So I just think a lot of people could turn a lot of their, you know, social media activity into real life activities. And I think things like voting and paying attention to the details is probably the thing I would like to shine a light on.
3: That's great. Super important.
0: Terrific.
1: All right, it's it's that time of the episode where Ben mangles some programming terminology. Every episode we shout out a lifeboat, somebody gets a badge for taking a question that had a negative score, giving an answer, and then getting up to a score of 20 or more. So in this case, it is concatenate two char strings in a C program.
2: You can pronounce car like a pirate. We agreed that
1: I could pronounce it that way. Asked by Be Curious seven years ago and answered recently by DCA Swell. So shout out to DCA Swell and congrats on your lifeboat badge. All right, everybody, I am Ben Popper, director of content here at Stack Overflow. If you want to reach us with ideas, suggestions, comments, etc., it's podcast at StackOverflow.com. And you can find me on Twitter at
0: Ben Popper.
3: And I'm Sarah Chips, Director of Community here at Stack Overflow. You can find me at Sarah Joe on GitHub.
0: Oh, sign off. It's like this is Kelsey Hightower. You can only
2: find me on Twitter <laughs> at Kelsey Hightower. And this is Paul Ford, a friend of Stack Overflow. I've said it before. Kelsey just said it better than I could say it, but I'll say it again. Go vote, 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 vote. Yes.
1: All right. Well, Kelsey, thanks again for coming on. It was really fascinating to listen to you talk about all this stuff. And yeah, I'd love to have you back sometime in the future.
0: Awesome. Thanks for having me.